Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. So if you would, open up the Word of God and turn in it in the Old Testament to the book of 1 Kings in chapter number 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 266, and you would be at 1 Kings 18. You know, you don't have to be a student of the Old Testament for very long to find out that when certain characters are mentioned, that we automatically associate them with a particular event. For example, if I were to mention the name of Noah, we would immediately associate him with the great flood. If I were to mention Joshua, you might think about the walls of Jericho coming tumbling down. If I were to mention David, you probably would associate most frequently with him the slaying of the giant Goliath. If I were to mention Daniel, you would probably think about the event of the lion's den. And if we talk about Elijah, most frequently we connect him back to the confrontation that he had with the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel. That's what we're going to look at today. And truly it is one of the high points of the Old Testament. Now this is a very striking and spellbinding story. But I want to say that it is a little bit difficult from a sermon standpoint because it really covers 40 verses. That's a lot of verses to read in the allotted sermon time and then to go back and study it. But you know what? I believe we can do it. You know, so let's do that today. We're continuing our series entitled Ordinary to Extraordinary on the Life of Elijah and the title I've given to today's message is Courage in Conviction. It's the fourth message in the series and if you've missed the first three, I would invite you to go to our webpage, and you can download or listen to them there. Basically, we're just going to do two things today. We're going to first look at the great event itself, and then we're going to take some time to draw some key life lessons from it. Now, as we begin to approach the key event, I've laid out a, a little bit of an outline so it can help us to understand it. So first of all, we have the setting in the first 18 verses of chapter 18. Then we have the proposal that Elijah gives in verses 19 and 20. Then we have the confrontation itself in verse 21 to 39. We can break that down more fully as the challenge that is given in 21 to 25, Baal's 450 in verses 26 to 29, and Elijah's turn in verses 30 to 39. And then it's all really concluded with the resolution in verse 40. So let's begin by looking at this setting, which is the first 18 verses. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. It says, Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, it had been three years, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab, and the famine was severe in Samaria, or in the northern kingdom. If you've been with us in our study, you know that God has been taking Elijah through some times of preparation, some times of spiritual deepening, and some times of spiritual development. And what he's really saying to him now is that period of preparation to go and meet Ahab is over. It's time to go see Ahab, King Ahab, again. 
And in verse 3, we run into a, a third character here by the name of Obadiah. Now, Obadiah was a very popular name in Israel, but this is not the same Obadiah as the book of Obadiah or the prophet Obadiah. It's a different Obadiah. But we, knew, we do learn regarding this Obadiah that he was, first of all, highly gifted. Look at verse 3. It says that Obadiah was over the household of King Ahab. He was Ahab's chief of staff, if you will. Now, that, you have to be gifted to be the chief of staff to the king of Israel. But we also learn that he was highly principled. Notice verse 3. Regarding Obadiah, it says that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. That's a very strong statement. He didn't just fear the Lord, he feared him greatly. And then we know as he talks with uh, our, our key character, Elijah, later on in, in uh, verse 12, at the end of the verse, he remembers that he had feared the Lord from his youth. This was someone who walked with God from a very young age, highly principled. And then we saw this verse earlier in our study in verse 4, when Jezebel gave the order to kill all the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred of them and hid them by fifties in a cave, and he provided them with bread and water, very much like hiding the Jews in the Nazi era in Germany. So he was, on a daily basis, risking discovery by King Ahab for not only hiding the prophets of the Lord, but also providing for them on a regular basis. Now, the drought was so severe in the land. In verses 5 and 6, here's what's happening. King Ahab and his chief of staff, Obadiah, are going to lead some survey teams. They're going to go through the land. They're looking for water anywhere. They're looking for some green grass to feed the animals. And so Ahab goes in one direction, and Obadiah goes in another direction, and then what happens in verse 7 is Obadiah bumps into Elijah. And he recognizes Elijah, and he falls on his face before Elijah, and he says, Is this you, Elijah, my master? Now remember, he's been gone for three years. And probably some people have even said maybe he had died someplace. And so when they greet one another here, Elijah says to Obadiah, Go tell Ahab Elijah is here. Now, what I found interesting is that there are some commentators and some very good commentators who are highly critical of this character, Obadiah. And here's part of what they tend to say about him. I mean, how could any godly person ever work with King Ahab? I mean, how could he ever be King Ahab's chief of staff? I mean, that's fraternizing with the world. That tells you something about Ahab, they would say. Also, they would say that when Elijah comes to him and says, I want you to go to Ahab and tell him I'm here, they say, well, he starts making excuses. He doesn't immediately follow what Elijah has instructed him to do. He starts making excuses. Some of them even would call Obadiah a coward. And some would say in verse 13, when, when he's filling Elijah in on the fact he's been hiding some of the prophets for the Lord, uh, of the Lord and, and providing for them, they say, there's a guy just bragging. He's just bragging to Elijah about what he's been doing. There's actually a number of commentators who say that. And I just want you to know, personally, I have a hard time buying that perspective about Obadiah. And there's several reasons why I say that. 
The first one is the one that we saw in verse 3 when it says that Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Not just feared the Lord, but feared the Lord greatly. And this isn't his own words. This is the perspective of God on it. His heart was right before the Lord. He feared the Lord greatly. Second reason why I have a hard time buying this scenario is the proof of the strength of his faith, which we saw in verse 4. Remember, he hid the prophets of the Lord, and then he's providing on a daily basis, risking his life on a daily basis to provide sustenance to them in the cave. That's not something that cowards do. That's someone who has a lot of strength. And then the third reason why I don't really buy that perspective is Elijah never gives any kind of a rebuke to Obadiah for being a chief of staff of King Ahab. He doesn't do that. In fact, having godly people heading up the staff of a secular leader is not an unprecedented thing in the Bible. You remember that you had Joseph, who was the right arm to Pharaoh. And then you have Daniel, who was really one of the right arms to King Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, King Nebuchadnezzar was far from a choir boy. And so I don't really buy, I don't buy that perspective. In fact, you know, I think both Elijah and Obadiah were functioning as salt and light in the nation of Israel. They were just doing it in different ways. They just have different personalities. Elijah is very bold, he's focused, he's confrontational. Obadiah is, on the other hand, a cautious, detailed, but highly practical guy. Different personalities being used in different ways, but both being salt and light in the nation. And that's the way God works it. He just uses all types of people. He uses me, and he uses you, no matter who you may be. That's the way God works. Now, in verses 9 to 12, we have an interesting interchange as, as uh, Obadiah runs into Elijah, and Elijah says, hey, go an announcement, would you, to King Ahab that I'm here? And uh, Ahab says, wait a minute now, are you trying to put me into the hands of Ahab to, to put me to death? Look at verse 10. He says, listen, there's been no nation, no kingdom where my master has not sent and searched for you. And when they said, hey, Elijah's not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you're just telling me, hey, uh, go and tell Ahab that Elijah is here. He said, in verse 12, he says, my, part of my concern is that the, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you away to someplace I don't know, so when I come and tell Ahab, and then he can't find you, that he's going to kill me. He'll wipe me out. I mean, this was a guy who had seen Ahab operate up close, and he knew that there'd been this multi-nation manhunt for Elijah. He knew that there's been this all-points bulletin with Interpol trying to find Elijah, and he knew that Ahab was exasperated for not being able to track him down. And he also knew that he'd been on the run for three years. And he says, listen, if I tell Ahab that you're here and God takes you away again, I'm a dead man. And then he goes on to add in verse 13, and while you've been gone for those three years, I just want you to be aware. Do you know that I've been walking a tightrope here because I am the chief of staff, but, but when she wanted to wipe out all the prophets, I hid a hundred of them, and I've been feeding them on a daily basis. You know that all has been going on, Elijah? 
And, and what happens in verse 15 is Elijah gives him assurance. He says, hey, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to Ahab today. You can count on it. I'm not going anywhere. And, you know, I always wonder at times like this, what was the rest of the conversation that they had? You know, to allay his fears, did Elijah tell him, let me just tell you what's been going on. <laughs> I, you know, God sent me to the brook, the wadi at Cherith, and he had the ravens feeding me two times a day. And then, he, you know, he, he directed me to Zarephath, right in the middle of Baal country. And, uh, you know, I got this relationship going with his widow, and God supernaturally provided for her and her son and me there. And then the, the son died, and then God raised him up from the dead. And, and you know, and I want you to know that, uh, you know, God has had me hidden for all of these years, but now he's told me now is the time to go and see Ahab. I, I figure probably they had that conversation. That would give Obadiah great confidence. So he does that. He goes and he tells King Ahab, Elijah's here. Now remember, King Ahab had been ticked off for three plus years. For three plus years, he'd been watching the Weather Channel report. It was monotonous. Sun, sun, more sun, no clouds, no rain coming at all. Three plus years. And he had been exasperated. He'd been trying to track this guy down. And finally, they come face to face in verse 17. And it says that when Elijah, uh, rather Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is this you, <laughs> you troubler of Israel? You guy that's causing all the problems around here? And we have a very Elijah-like retort, extremely direct, in verse 18. Elijah says, I have not troubled Israel, but you, kind of poking him in the chest, and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. Hey, don't talk about me bringing trouble. You're the one who brought trouble by convincing the nation to go after the God Baal. And that leads us to the proposal in verses 19 and 20. He says to him, you know what? I think we need, to, we need to have this out. We need to, would you gather the whole nation to Mount Carmel together with the 450 prophets of Baal, verse 19, and the 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table? Let's, let's just get this done. Let's have it out once and for all. We're gonna let the people decide. We're gonna bring it out all in the open. And so that's exactly what Ahab does in verse 20. And so they all get together at Mount Carmel which then leads us to the confrontation, which begins with a challenge in verses 21 to 25. Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people of Israel and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. That little phrase, how long will you hesitate in the New American Standard Bible? If you have an ESV, it says, how long will you limp between two opinions? This is an idiom in Hebrew for indecision. The Net Bible translates it this way, 
How long will you be paralyzed by indecision? See, what had happened to the people of Israel is they had become totally wishy-washy. They were squishy spiritually. And, and that's where, ult, or, or, or where uh, relative truth ultimately leads. And we're seeing that becoming embraced by our whole culture. See, if your truth is as good as my truth, then anything can be truth. If everything is right to somebody, then nothing will be wrong. And really what he's saying to the nation is stop embracing everything. Stop being wishy-washy and squishy spiritually. Now, I just want to remind you, because we're talking about Baal, you remember that Baal is the god of thunder and storms and rain. He was said to control and direct the seasons. He is the one who brought the rain, and he is the one who withholds the rain. And also connected with the worship of Baal was this sensual activity that occurred with the priests and the priestesses of Baal. And you say, why would people do that? Well, part of the idea was that when you got involved in this sensual activity with a priest or a priestess, that part of the power of Baal was being transformed and transferred into your life. And you could see how this had a strong appeal to people's flesh. The sensual scale of it all, the prosperity scale of it all. You want to experience sensuality. You want to experience prosperity. You worship Baal. And so basically, what he's saying to the nation is, it's time to stop. Stop being wishy-washy and squishy spiritually. And so you have uh, what occurs then. It's interesting to me, at the end of verse 21, he mentions this statement to them, and they don't say anything. It's like, well... Don't even have a response to that. And so then he talks about how what we want to do is we want to get out here on Mount Carmel and have a little test. Now, I want to remind you something about Mount Carmel, just to give you a little bit of background on it. Mount Carmel is a mountain by the Mediterranean Sea coast. It is west of the Sea of Galilee. And you see a picture of it there. It has a very long bluff at the top. And Mount Carmel was very strategic militarily. You say, why? Well, if you look at the view from Mount Carmel, you could see in all directions from the mountain. That's why it was strategic militarily. But it was also strategic religiously. They tell us that very strong thunder would emanate from the top of Mount Carmel. In fact, some historical writings tell us that Mount Carmel at this time developed the nickname Baal's Bluff. This is the bluff where Baal lived. And we're going to see a little later that the altar to Yahweh had been torn down on the top of Mount Carmel. But here's the point of all of this. To the prophets of Baal, this was home field advantage, being on Mount Carmel. This was their home turf. This is where Baal really lived. So the whole idea, we're going to take some animals, some oxen, we're going to cut them up, place them on the wood, there'll be no fire there. Uh, Elijah prepares one, the 450 prophets of Baal per perform the other, and then we're going to call in the name of God, and the one that is really God is going to bring fire down. 
So first we have Baal's 450 who take their turn at it in verses 26 to 29. Now let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard anyone share this notion with you? It goes something like this. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Anyone ever heard that one before? I remember first hearing that when I was in college. Doesn't really make any difference what you believe. It's all about being sincere. Well, I want you to know that the 450 prophets of Baal, men and women, were among the most sincere people who ever lived on this planet. We're going to see that. Extremely sincere, but utterly wrong. Well, notice in verse 26, it says that uh, they take the oxen given to them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered, and they leaped about the altar which they had made. From morning to noon, they're pleading. They're dancing around and beating drums. They're performing all these sexualized antics. Oh, if we could just get the attention of Baal. And then have an interesting response by Elijah about noon, verse 27. It says, Elijah mocked them and said, call out with a loud voice. Basically, he was saying, hey, guys, it's been three hours. You need to get louder. Get louder. He said, maybe Baal has been occupied. Maybe he's in some sort of a deep meditation. Maybe he's reading an incredible novel, and he's all tied up in that. You need to get louder. Or he says, maybe he has gone aside, as it says in the New American Standard. The ESV and others says, maybe he's relieving himself. Yeah, he's actually saying this. Maybe Baal's in the celestial outhouse, and he's not just doing the small business there. He's doing the big business there, and you need to be louder to get his attention. Or maybe he's out on a journey, you know. He's traveling somewhere. He's out on the beach. Maybe he's out on a hunting trip. Get louder. Or maybe he is asleep, you know, his iPhone alarm has malfunctioned, and you need to get louder so that he can hear you. And so in verse 28, they cry out with a loud voice and get louder, and then they go further than that. They start, look at how sincere they are. They cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out of them. I mean, try to picture this. They're cutting themselves enough that blood is just gushing all over their body. And so for three more hours this goes on. And they're approaching 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, you know, just stop for a moment. You might say, why was this really all necessary? I mean, was it really necessary to do this? Can't you just have Elijah say, it's not going to rain for three years, and then he comes back and says, okay, now it's going to rain again. Isn't that enough? Well, what do you think the people's response would have been in all likelihood? You know, no rain for three years, it's raining again. Bale's back. This is great. No, God knew that there needed to be a public, decisive discrediting of Baal. You know, men and women, we have the equivalence of a primetime telecast going on here. The whole nation is there. Everybody's watching. So then we come to Elijah's turn in this process in verses 30 to 39. You know, if you were there that day, and by the way, the 400 uh, prophets or prophetesses of, of Asherah, we don't even know, they don't even apparently show up. 
But the 450 prophets of Baal did it. So it's 450 to one. And they're probably thinking, this is going to be a slam dunk. 450 of us to one of him. Here's what they forgot. One plus God is a minority, or rather a majority. You know, one plus God, you're outnumbered, even if there's 450 of you. And so what does he do? In verse 30, he repairs the altar of the Lord Yahweh that had been torn down. In fact, in chapter 19 and verse 10, we find out that all throughout Israel, all of the altars of the Lord had been torn down. So he repairs it. He grabs 12 stones just to remind them that they are a nation that had been called by Yahweh. He builds a trench around the sacrifice. He arranges the items in verse 33 on the sacrifice. And then in verse 34, he says, I want you to take four containers of water, and I want you to drench the whole thing. And I want you to not only do that once, I want you to do that twice, and I want you to do it a third time. Now, here's what's interesting. People who are trying to prove that the Bible has errors, they like to step up at this point and go, can you believe how stupid this is? I mean, what was going on in the nation? A drought. It hadn't rained for three years. We have teams out searching. Can we find any water anywhere? How? <laughs> you know, they would say, how did you get water to put on a sacrifice? How silly. I just wish they would look at a map. You know, right at the bottom of Mount Carmel is the Mediterranean Sea. It wasn't dry. It had seawater, but there's plenty of water available. So that's what they do. They take the water, four containers, three times. They totally soak everything. And then notice verse 36. It says, at the time of the evening sacrifice, which was at 3 p.m., which, by the way, was the normal time for the daily sacrifice to God, which had ceased throughout the land. Remember, they tore down all of the altars. Right at the right time, we're going to have a sacrifice. And you think about the eight to nine hours of gyrations by the prophets of Baal, and then what do we get out of Elijah? Some 60 words in English. Not a lot of dancing or anything else. Nobody cutting themselves. Just 60 words. There's a trifold prayer that he gives. He says, God, I want you to send fire, answer, that they may know that you, Lord, are the real God. I want you to answer and send fire that they will know that I am your prophet and doing your will. I want you to answer and send fire so that the hearts of the people will be turned back to you. That's the prayer. 60 words in English. And what happens? Verse 38, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Even the rocks are completely consumed by the heat of the fire that God sends down. Notice verse 39, when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In the original, Yahweh, he is Elohim. Yahweh, he is Elohim. Yahweh, he is Elohim. Over and over again, they shouted it. What a magnificent event that must have been. And then you have the, the resolution of it all in verse 40. Elijah says to them, here's what we're gonna do. I want you to seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape so they seized them, and they were brought down to the brook Kishon. Uh, that was, they were driven down the steep 
sides of the mountain down to the brook near there, and that's where they were slain. Now, some people look at that and say, that's, that's kind of extreme, isn't it? You know, you just take out 450 people? But remember, the prophets of Baal were a malignant tumor in the spiritual heart of the people of Israel. They were a spiritual malignancy, and if undealt with, could lead to eternal destruction and certainly judgment on the nation. So when he told him to do this, he was just following God's directives. God said in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, that's how you deal with them. That's what you do. Now we come to this point in the story, and, and, I, and I like to say, here's where I like to use the word from the Psalms, Selah, S-E-L-A-H. You see it in the Psalms, and it basically just means take a pause and reflect on what you've just heard. What an amazing event. But let's look at some key life lessons, I think, that we can draw from this. These are just some. Here's the first one. Stop limping. Choices have consequences. I mean, it's, it's a choice we all have to face. I mean, are we going to live for this world or are we going to live for his kingdom? Are we going to choose Christ or are we going to reject Christ? You see, our culture is growing more and more wishy-washy, more squishy spiritually. And when we have people who are trying to walk both sides of the street, the Bible calls them double-minded. And it says in James 1.8 that someone who is double-minded is unstable in all of their ways. We need to stop limping and remember that choices have consequences. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 6.24. He says you can't serve two masters. You cannot do it. Oh, but people, even in the church, try to do it. No, he said you can't do it. You can't serve God and serve wealth at the same time. They lead in opposite directions. In Hebrews 11, it tells us that Moses chose, here's that idea of choosing, to align himself with the people of God rather than engaging in the passing pleasures of sin. And you know, every week people have to make that choice on a Saturday and a Sunday. Am I gonna choose engaging in the passing pleasures of sin or am I gonna align myself with the people of God? Stop limping, choices have consequences. Remember Joshua, when they were coming into the land in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, he said, choose for yourselves today whom you're going to serve. It's a choice that we have to make. And he says there, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So where do you stand today? Not just up here in your head, but in the practice in your life. Second thing we can learn by way of a key life lesson is that God uses all types of personalities. I absolutely love this. You know, Elijah was bold and focused and confrontational. He was a front and center guy. Obadiah was cautious and detailed and practical. He was a behind-the-scenes guy. And all types of people are valuable. God uses all types of personalities. I mean, without Elijah, there would have been no Mount Carmel. 
Without Obadiah, all the prophets of Israel, short of Elijah, would have been killed off. God uses all types of personalities, and sometimes we, we don't think that way. You know, we think, you know what, I, like, I'm not a John MacArthur. I'm, I'm not a Matt Chandler, or I, I'm not a Bruce, or I'm not a Mark. I don't know. Is God really going to want to use me? And the answer is yes, yes. Remember the picture of the body of Christ from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you haven't been there, you ought to go back there. Look at that. Study that chapter. All parts of the body of Christ are valuable, and God loves to use all kinds of personalities. Here's what I would say. Be who God called you and gifted you to be. That's who you need to be. Then the third thing we can learn by way of a life lesson is that as salt and light, we should cultivate integrity wherever God has us. That's what Joseph did, that's what Daniel did, that's what Obadiah did, and that's what Elijah did. And that's what we need, you, me, as salt and light, to cultivate integrity wherever God has us. Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, I urge you, he's talking to us as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He's basically saying cultivate integrity. Live such a good life among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day that he visits us. As salt and light, let's cultivate integrity wherever God has us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for this living book, this transforming book, for the story of Elijah and even the, the story of Obadiah. And Lord, we would pray that you would just help us to avoid being squeezed in the mold of the world, acting like they are, squishy spiritually as they are, that you use us no matter who we are in a great way. Just may all of us be committed to cultivating integrity wherever you have us, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 